But I assume that for the point of the American democracy, yeah. and some people you can express too. any some point of view you want. Nazi. Shut up a minute. No, I won't. And some people were pro-Nazi, and the answer is that they were, they were well-treated by people who ostracized them, and I'm for ostracizing people who egg on other people to shoot American Marines and American soldiers. As I know you don't as care, far as because I'm you don't feel any sense about The only sort of pro or crypto-Nazi yeah. I can think of is yourself. Failing that, let's, I would let's, only let's say that we names. can't have now listen, you the right of the assembly stop calling me a crypto-Nazi. Let's, let's stop calling names and you let's get... Goddamn face, and let's you'll stay plastered. Gentlemen, let's... Welcome to Michael and us. I'm Will Sloan, here as always with... Luke Savage. Hi, guys. Big couple of days. Over in the UK, a shockwave has engulfed the nation. As you know, the United Kingdom is held on to continental Europe by a series of hooks, and they were going to unhook the country and let it drift off into the sea. But unfortunately, the strong and stable leadership of Theresa May had an unforeseen hiccup. <laughs> the Brexit deal is not happening. But but also, <laughs> as if this were not enough to rattle Her Majesty's kingdom, another earthquake has been felt from across the pond. Uh, while the nation is in turmoil, beloved conservative columnist Peter Hitchens, brother of the late Christopher, has been engaged in a feud with one of the two co-hosts of the Michael and Us podcast. Can you guess which one? Yes, it was our own Luke Savage. Luke, how did this feud, which has been raging all day with Peter Hitchens, start? <laughs> so last night I was uh, I, I was just kind of thinking about conservatism for some reason, it might have come because I was watching William F. Buckley and Gore Vidal debate each other, but it's been a persistent frustration of mine that I don't think that uh, on the right there are very many good faith attempts to understand the left. And there's a, a response that you get anytime you make a claim like that, which is, well, people on the left caricature the right as well, etc., etc. And I think that's true to a certain extent. But, I mean, what, I, what I'm really looking for is where is... Corey Robbins, the reactionary mind, but by a right-wing intellectual about the left. You know, Corey Robin has immersed himself in hundreds of years of conservative thinking, conservative thinking from Edmund Burke through to Sarah Palin. And he's written a kind of grand thesis of conservatism, which really uh, understands it, you know, as much as an impulse as, as an ideology. Um, and whether you agree with him or not, it's, it's a pretty sophisticated theory of conservatism and taxonomy of it. I don't are, are you familiar with the book How to Argue with a Liberal <laughs> If You Must by Ann Coulter? Yeah, that I guess maybe that is maybe that is the analog. Uh, but so I just kind of put this on to people on Twitter like is there a good faith Ann Coulter aside? Is there a good faith example on the right to think about and interpret and evaluate the left? And this partly comes out of um, I've actually been to the biggest gathering of movement conservatives in Canada a few times. What's it called? The Manning Conference. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I went there to, to, to observe and, and report on it. And I, I, I did find it a, a genuinely interesting experience. But the first thing, I mean, I remember the first time I went and, and the, the, the panel that I uh, found myself at was this conservative filmmaker, uh, American guy, basically talking about how Hollywood controls everything and Hollywood is the left and, and the left controls all the universities and the entire culture industry, etc., etc. But then all his examples of what this left-wing takeover looked like were things along the lines of, you know, the film The Wolf of Wall Street portrays capitalists in a bad light. Um, 
you know, Hollywood is always portraying CEOs as villains. It, you know, it's things like that. He actually started quoting Dr. Seuss, uh, the, the Lorax story, right. as an example of environmentalist propaganda for children. This is 100% deadpan. This wasn't some kind of tongue-in-cheek uh, performance. And, you know, throughout the conference that year and in the subsequent years I went, I, I found this was a common theme. Just a lack of curiosity about the left, but also just no real understanding of what uh, the left is. I mean, and, and, and kind of two broadly contradictory ideas of what the left is. So on the one hand, the problem is that the left is this authoritarian impulse. It's about making the state control everything and micromanage every aspect of our lives. And then on the other hand, the problem with the left is that it's too permissive, you know, that it's tolerant of all these like liberalized attitudes and alternate lifestyles and it wants to destroy the family and it doesn't believe in, you know, the entrepreneurial ethic that, that is the, you know, one of the, the basic ethics of conservatism, etc., etc. And I don't really see how the left can simultaneously be too permissive and too authoritarian. Like, those are very contradictory things. And Peter Hitchens wrote this book called The Abolition of Britain, which is a book about the New Labour project in the 90s. And if you were going to read a book by a conservative, I mean, this is just an interesting experiment. I'll venture to say it's a better book than the Ann Coulter one that you just named. I mean, maybe that's not saying much. But, you know, and Peter Hitchens' critique of New Labour is very much you know, what I just described, or it suffers from, in my view, this this contradiction. It's New Labour, he posits, was an extension of Euro-communism, and he's been throwing that at me uh, today on Twitter. So New Labour is kind of this authoritarian, quasi-Stalinist project. Um, but then on the other hand, the problem with New Labour is that it's all this licentious, you know, politics that come out of the sexual revolution, and, uh, and it's anti-family, etc., etc., and again, I just think it's bizarre to claim those two things at once. Now, I did not tag Peter Hitchens in this. I just offhandedly, I think rather politely, I, all I, I think the only mean adjective I used about his book was that 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 it's odd. And, uh, and he searches his name. He clearly searches his name. <laughs> um, I mean, I guess it's possible someone sent him the tweet, but I think he probably searches his name. What a remarkable thing to just find yourself spending an afternoon interacting with Peter Hitchens <laughs> on the internet. <laughs> Ten years ago, would you have believed such a thing was possible? My, my original tweet said, I found the contradiction expressed really strongly in Peter Hitchens' odd book, The Abolition of Britain, which depicts the New Labour Project as both quasi-Stalinist and fatally licentious slash permissive. Which is it? So Peter Hitchens replies, Well, both, Luke Savage, the loins and the wallet free, the mind in chains, <laughs> as in China. This is the sad final state of the left. So I don't exactly know what that's Wait, supposed the, to mean. the loins and the wallet intertwine? Peter's, Peter's uh, characteristic uh, eloquence and articulacy is failing him, obviously. So I just replied, uh, I think many of us remain confused at the depiction of Tony Blair's technocratic neoliberal project as being revolutionary in any sense, or having anything to do with the left, which uh, more or less explicitly repudiated. You know, and then he said, well, Luke Savage, that's because you prefer lazy prejudice and conventional wisdom to studying the facts with any care. I cannot make you think, especially if you're afraid your friends will laugh at you when you do. So I just replied, and, you know, I, I was happy to keep this to the replies, but Peter does this thing. I've seen him do this with other people. Like, he always quote tweets. <laughs> um, 
because he always wants you he know, wants to be seen to be owning someone yeah right? well and i mean you know uh, who am i to talk um <laughs> but but you know i i so i was like all right uh we're quote tweeting you know let's let's do this so i quote tweeted him and i said blair explicitly repudiated the left and his ascendancy actively marginalized left-wing voices figures and policies within the labor party which is just a matter of objective historical fact Blair and the Blairite Project displaced the people like Tony Benn insofar as they had had any power. It was explicitly a repudiation of old labor, but also the old labor left. And anyway, uh, this has gone on throughout the day. And, um, you know, there have been a number of uh, further salvos, mostly from Peter's end. Uh, that's because you refuse to think, Luke Savage. Nobody can help you with that except yourself. A willfully closed mind is the strongest fortress known to man. <laughs> You know, I don't think I'm being particularly hostile. He probably thinks I'm being more hostile than than I am. I, I genuinely find his argument about new labor, like it's so baffling that I find it fascinating. Uh-huh. I think he thinks I'm being a little more hostile than I than I am. I mean, the book is absurdly reactionary in all kinds of ways. But basically, I find the overall thesis so strange that I am kind of interested in how anyone can can think that about new labor anyway so that's uh you know i guess we're we're best of enemies now uh we've had our own our own uh, buckley vidal style feud before moving on one of the revelations for me of you know the last decade and maybe it's not a revelation to you is that liberals and the left don't have fundamentally the same goals right there are actual different shades from the center to the left Mm -hmm. Whereas on the right, I think we are encouraged to think that there are different shades, that there are movement conservatives, and that there are yeah respectable, respectable conservatives. But ultimately, it seems to me like they have the same goals. Mm-hmm. I yeah, I mean, I'd be curious to know what you know on the right, kind of what they what they think of that, because the whole archetype of the respectable conservative seems to be something to my mind anyway that's kind of been conjured by liberals because their politics uh, requires them to constantly construct a reasonable interlocutor on the other side mm-hmm. uh, even when when wasn't one isn't isn't there even the so-called respectable conservatives seem to share most of the same culture war goals as yeah. the movement conservatives and we're encouraged to think that they don't mm-hmm. the respectable conservatives are just as worried about the decline of morals oh, and yeah. the breakdown of the family unit. Mitt, Mitt Romney thinks that half of the United States are sort of these like dependent, parasitic... Like, what was his comment about... It was like uh, the 47... The takers. The yeah. takers, yeah. Not makers. Yeah, yeah. But it seems to me that there are actual substantive differences from the center to the left, and it doesn't seem to me like even the conservative intellectuals acknowledge this. Yeah, I mean, there must be, I mean, there are some, I'm sure, who understand that liberalism and socialism are not, are, are distinct traditions. Like, but- for example, Peter Hitchens seems to think that New Labor or, you know, Bill Clinton's presidency were these sort of wolf in sheep's clothing attempts to, yeah, uh, yeah like, like Trojan horsing socialism into this capitalist <laughs> uh, sheen. Yeah, I mean... I'll just say, if Tony Blair uh, was was a secret communist, he was the most pro-capitalist communist. I don't know where in the communist tradition you find the kind of you know absurd fawning on high finance and worshiping at the altar of 
you know, bankers in the city of London. I don't know where where in kind of either the socialist or the communist tradition you find that, but uh, Mr. Hitchens will have to correct me. Paul Vidal is one of America's most successful and distinguished writers. We are all prostitutes in one sense or another, ethically, if not sexually. For Buckley, Vidal was the devil. I am a happy warrior. I'm in battle. I'm enjoying it. He represented everything that was going to moral hell. These were two visions of America clashing. Each thought that the other was quite dangerous. All this security makes me very nervous, because it's necessary, apparently. If Buckley were not taken out, his ideas would take down the nation. The country is being split at the seams. It's almost as if they were matter and antimatter. Say that again. Freedom breeds inequality. Now say it uh, a third uh, time. No, yeah, twice is enough. He's always to the right and almost always in the wrong. I confess that anything complicated confuses Mr. Vidal. A grotesque example. Must somehow hold it Shut up, He's nothing feigned. They really do despise one another. Well, before Michael and us, there was another liberal conservative duo who, uh, the year was 1968, one of the most turbulent years in American and modern world history. This brought to you by, uh, this introduction brought to you by Time Magazine. In this year of social upheaval, an election looms. At the Republican National Convention, Richard Nixon accepts the nomination, while in the Democratic National Convention, Hubert Humphrey ascends to the throne and on lowly abc the last rated of the major networks (laughs) one of one of the three tv channels that existed on cable in a desperate bid for viewers the network executives try something unconventional instead of gavel to gavel coverage of the convention they enlist two of the foremost partisan intellectuals of their time on the right william f buckley founder and editor of the National Review. On the left, Myra Breckenridge, author, novelist, playwright, screenwriter, TV personality, Gore Vidal. For 10 nights, these two intellectual heavyweights went mano a mano, tussling over the issues of the day, threatening to sock each other in the goddamn jaw. (laughs) Uh, And perhaps, according to the 2015 documentary Best of Enemies, setting the template for the 24-hour cable news cycle hellscape we find ourselves in today. So we sh- I just want to say before we kind of get into this film and, and say what we think is wrong with it, because I, I unfortunately I think this is another one of those cases where mostly that's what we're going to be doing. Um, it is an entertaining film. Yeah. I, I've seen it a few times, actually. Yeah. Uh, it's on if, It's on Netflix, unlike a lot of the stuff we watch. This isn't one of those bargain bin straight-to-DVD things that we've become so famous for. This is an actual movie that's on Netflix. It's very slick. It's got a murderer's row of talking head interviews. Mm-hmm. Uh, everyone from the late Christopher Hitchens to <laughs> the great Andrew Sullivan. Yeah, the other Hitchens. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, it's directed by Morgan Neville, who, of course, made the Mr. Rogers documentary. Who you have interviewed. I I interviewed him in connection with this movie, in fact. Right. One thing I can tell you is that he interviewed Vidal towards the end of his life for this documentary, but the interview didn't go very well because Vidal was accusing him and his crew of being Buckleyites. Oh, I see. Um, So that's a little bit of behind the scenes Mm -hmm. tidbits for you. Well, the film is very much kind of in awe of Buckley. And I mean, I guess this is just the 
the house style of a film like this, you know, you have to give a kind of charitable account of both of the major characters for it to kind of work. I'm not sure that the film adequately conveys how repellent Buckley's views were. It, it, it's a very much a Time magazine-y kind of presentation of, of what he was doing. I mean, Vidal, um, you know, you learn about Myra Breckenridge, you learn about how, uh, you know, he was very interested in kind of smut and... And this idea that nobody is entirely heterosexual or, mm-hmm. or homosexual. Yeah, he was, a, he was a radical kind of social thinker, mm-hmm. and the film conveys that very well. And with Buckley, it, it more talks about him as a rebel within the conservative movement and a popularizer of conservatism. And I suppose in certain senses that he was those things, but I don't think that really adequately conveys how despicable some of the stuff the National Review published was, or that it was you know, hostile to desegregation and things like that. It sort of suggests that he was a big force in pushing the Republican Party further right. Mm-hmm. And I think it sort of just hopes that you'll connect the dots on what that means. It's This is a very standard kind of account of American politics, right? You had the Goldwater campaign in the early 60s, which was not a success, but which was a kind of an an expression of the new type of movement conservatism that people like Buckley were helping to create. And that eventually birthed Nixon, who was a success, and then eventually Reagan, who was even more of a success. So those presidencies and kind of uh, the events surrounding them very much were what rooted American politics on the right from kind of the, the 80s onward, uh, or on the neo-Marxist left, I'm sure, if you were to ask Peter Hitchens. <laughs> now, the movie takes a somewhat ambivalent view of of the Buckley-Vidal debates, suggesting that it was both this exciting moment when two heavyweight intellectuals got to spar on TV in this era of like the golden age of public intellectuals, yeah. while also suggesting that their debates led to a coarsening of the culture, Mm -hmm. the sort of thing that Jon Stewart was railing against when he was on uh, that Tucker Carlson show. Crossfire. Crossfire, which, uh, wait, was what was... uh, Buckley shook a firing line. Firing yes, line, yeah. yes. Which the movie, the movie, I think depicts firing line very charitably. Mm-hmm. Well, it's it's funny to me that uh, Buckley, would, and I guess the film does kind of it is a little bemused by this. The idea that Buckley was a popularizer of anything, and that firing line was something that that anyone watched. watched. I mean, I mean, you know, the National Review was very influential on the right, and maybe it was more. Maybe it used to be more commercially successful. But as far as I know, it it hasn't been commercially successful for a long. A long time. I don't think Firing Line was that popular either. Didn't I think it aired on PBS? Maybe. I mean, because uh, Firing Line, you know, it's remarkable. Even if you watch, you know, there's a um, on the theme further further riffing on the theme of, of Hitchens's. You know, there's a funny episode that Christopher Hitchens was on Firing Line twice, and there's one from the early '80s where he's on with a guy called R. Emmett Tyrrell who wrote a book called The Liberal Crack Up, and it's amazing that I mean that's only a few years before both of us were born, and it's amazing that watching it. TV was kind of this slow, that it could yeah. be this slow, the production values could be so low. I mean, a typical episode of Firing Line quite literally begins with, you know, a standard kind of camera pan to a very somber looking audience, uh, sometimes clapping politely, and then, you know, uh, really kind of cheery classical music, like, and then, you know, just usually a bunch of kind of uh, balding old men sitting on the stage with their arms. Uh, folded or their legs crossed, Buckley kind of 
in his permanent slouch that he always adopted. You know, and then every episode will be introduced by a Buckley flourish that always sounds like, you know, um, uh, the failure of the Democratic Party and its uh, inherent contradictions in our in our in our time, and the whole thing proceeds like that. You know, it's not it's not a show where they ever got into sort of the nuts and bolts of policy. It's where they debated various political and cultural kind of meta narratives. Mm-hmm. The Christopher Hitchens one is pretty entertaining if people want to watch that. But the idea that a guy that talked like that was a popularizer of anything. I mean, I feel like between the two of them, you know. Um, Vidal leaned more into the fact that he was kind of a member of the elite, whereas Buckley, Buckley in terms of his manner and affect leaned into that as well. But I mean, he has this reputation as a as a popularizer. Um, and I just find that very bizarre if you actually watch the show. Well, key to Gore Vidal's brand was this idea that he was a class traitor. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he sort of played up. Uh, he had this very affected upper class diction and manner. Uh, while saying the sorts of things he said mm-hmm. uh, with his, you know, naughty little schoolboy uh, <laughs> voice. Vidal also seems more comfortable in his role as a TV entertainer, though. Uh, yeah. He never regarded TV as beneath him. It was mm. sort of his ideal medium for, you know, delivering bon mots and, mm. and witty takedowns. Mm. Which he did kind of write in advance. I mean, you can mm. tell in, in, in some of these clips that he's uh, delivering little barbs at Buckley that he's very much concocted before they've got... <laughs> well, they're the so overwritten, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But amusing nonetheless. Oh, yeah. I do enjoy this movie, and it's enjoyable because it has two sort of entertaining characters in it, and it shows a lot of footage from these debates, which I think are, you know, borderline useless as debates. Yeah. They're just two guys shouting over each other. Two two patricians that don't like each other talking past one another, which actually is fine by me. The movie, and I guess the debates, are an interesting character study. It's interesting to watch this guy, Buckley, having to sit there with this guy, Vidal, who he finds utterly reprehensible. I think he hates Vidal more than Vidal hates him. Oh, yeah. As as comes through in the famous clip where Buckley calls Vidal a queer and threatens to uh, suck him in the goddamn face. And you can see, you can see Vidal sort of smiling through the whole thing. In every clip we see... Buckley is the one who looks a little bit more flustered yeah. and is is kind of wiping his brow and Vidal always has this kind of permanent smirk on his face uh, yeah. which is surprising actually given that Buckley has this reputation as the master debater the guy who could intellectually dismantle anyone you know, in an every, argument everyone says that but i mean oh i mean it's not it's not that he's actually intellectually superior he just knows the the moves you do in a debate but you know people should go and watch the time where Buckley tried to debate Chomsky because Buckley couldn't handle Chomsky at all either like i think Buckley sort of disarm people by being so kind of i mean erudite and in, in just this in the way that he behaved but anytime that he was up against somebody who was armed with a lot of facts mm-hmm. and had kind of a compelling political narrative of their own i don't think he w- he did particularly well he knew which targets to to take it, some one of the interviewees in this documentary mentions that the only type of person that he refused to have on firing line was a communist I mean, who knows what his definition of a communist yeah, is. Right. Perhaps not only could, could he not accept that that sort of point of view could exist, but he might simply not have the tools at his disposal to dismantle it because he was just so so offended by it. Yeah. I rejoice in your disposition to argue the Vietnam question 
especially when I recognize what an act of self-control this must uh, involve. It does. Sure. It really does. Sure. I mean, I think and, that this is the kind of issue where... You're doing where, very well. You know, sometimes I lose my temper. Maybe not tonight. Maybe not tonight. <laughs> Uh, because uh, if you would, I'd smash you in the goddamn face. <laughs> the, uh, <clears throat> the thesis of the film, if there is one, and I guess you alluded to it earlier, is really that this was the beginning of the decline of, you know, the, the discourse. Mm -hmm. um, this was when a network like ABC could successfully get better ratings than the other networks by having a very rancorous debate during the national conventions, which 80% which of the country were, were watching, that the film claims was kind of the, the beginning of the end for kind of decency. And it was when networks started to chase ratings and they stopped being sort of boring and informative. And I got to say, I have a number of problems with this. This is the film only explicitly advances this in the final kind of 30 seconds. And then the credits start rolling and this kind of sad music plays. And you see Buckley saying something like, unfortunately, there is a, a, often a distinction between what is a, uh, highly illuminating and what is highly marketable or, or something like that. And I mean, of course that's true, but I think to counterpose cable news as it is today with these Buckley-Vidal debates, I really, I, I think there are a lot of problems with the comparison. I mean, for one thing, the people you tend to see on cable news are not public intellectuals, right? They are mm -hmm. pundits or they are professional political apparatchiks. And in fact, in some ways, those two roles are almost synonymous now for, for some people. Like someone like James Carville is an apparatchik turned pundit. He's kind of a mixture of both. And, you know, cable news isn't highly watchable. I mean, it's not as if it's extremely marketable. People hate it. I mean, the, the only way you can watch it is by watching it so much that your brain is just broken and you kind of watch it as, as infotainment. But the Buckley-Vidal debate is comparatively quite interesting because it is at least two public intellectuals um, who are compelling personalities. And it gets largely not what you see. They're also not there simply to advance a political party's point of view. Yeah. Buckley is obviously very closely aligned with the Republican Party, but he was independent of it, and his goal was to push it further rightward, mm -hmm. whereas most of the people you see on cable news shows are employed in some way by these parties yeah. to simply deliver their message. Mm -hmm. Obviously, Buckley and Vidal are better and more interesting intellectuals than, say, Hannity and Combs are, but I yeah. don't think their debate finds them at their best. No. You know? Yeah, and I, I think there's an even bigger problem problem with kind of the overall argument of the film um, because I mean it's depicting 1968 which is this time of uh, police brutality uh, the rise of Richard Nixon who used all this this barely even encoded racist language you know and was kind of uh, leveraging the sort of white identity politics which you know now find their kind of uh, lineage in, in Donald Trump um, you know this was not some harmonious time I mean if TV networks were boring and they were, you know, kind of uh, portraying a monoculture. Let's limit ourselves to that observation about TV networks. The idea that the country was less quote unquote tribal, whatever that means, because everyone wa was watching like the same boring cable networks. I, I don't think that's, uh, I don't think that's very helpful. I think the movie is a little bit unfair to Vidal in his later years, you know, even though he wasn't high profile in his later years he was still doing interesting things he was writing some of his most radical work at the time i don't know if you've read perpetual war for perpetual peace no, or some I of the pamphlets that he was writing at the time one of the reasons why he wasn't being talked about much or he wasn't on tv as much as he used to be 
in addition to being just a very elderly man and probably not as photogenic as he used to be, mm-hmm. was that his ideas had grown more radical. The film just sort of portrays him as, to quote Ross Douthat, a decaying monument. <laughs> you know, very much in line with that famous essay Christopher Hitchens wrote, Vidal Loco, which you've probably read. I don't think I have, actually. Oh, really? It's in his collection, arguably, mm-hmm. uh, where it very much positions him as, gee, you know, Gore was this... Uh, very smart guy, but then uh, all of a sudden he went a little bit cuckoo. Right. Well, that's. I mean, uh, that, I mean, that does sound very much like when Hitchens talks in Hitchens' autobiography. He has he has a number of uh, bits where he's he's trying to explain his falling out with various left wing figures, including uh, Vidal, also Edward Said. But um, I think you know Hitchens in writing those kinds of things is it's there's there's a certain amount of opportunism because he had an interest in portraying everyone else as having changed, but he was being ideologically consistent. He also had personal beef with Vidal for having disowned him and having snubbed him at that party, (laughs) Uh, which if you've seen the documentary Gore Vidal, United States of Amnesia, actually has footage of that incident. Really? Yeah. That's on Netflix too, right? It is. It's well worth a watch. Uh But I also think, you know, cable news probably didn't even know what to do with Vidal in his later years because he was genuinely radical I guess in the 60s, he was able to be portrayed as sort of a a, a pretty far left liberal. Yeah. But in his later years, I mean, he genuinely hated the Democratic Party. He hated American Empire. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems the it seems the spectrum of opinion that were on that was on cable news at the time of his death was, are you Obama or are you Mitt Romney? <laughs> so the film ultimately suffers from a particularly acute case of this sort of nostalgia for the bipartisan days of yore, which is something, you know, I've written about it um, a number of times. It's something you find you find everywhere. And it, it, it always has the same basic problem. The supposed moment of this kind of bipartisan harmony can really be anything. And you can you can arbitrarily pluck it out of, you know, out of thin air. And people people will date it depending on, you know, uh, what the argument you're making is, you know, some people say, oh, well, it began with Newt Gingrich and the contract for America mm-hmm. in the uh, in the 90s. You know, I watched um, that new HBO film about it's called The Clinton Affair about mm-hmm. the Clinton Lewinsky scandal. And that's very much the, the narrative it has. It, it, Newt Gingrich uh, turned congressional politics into this bitter, you know, always offensive, never kind of harmonious or cordial uh, way of doing things. Personally, I think it was when that commie JFK won a debate <laughs> just because he looked pretty on TV. <laughs> unlike, I, unlike my man Nixon. But I mean, people would, people probably have made that argument. Uh, people will make the argument, guys like R. Emmett Tyrell, um, who was on Firing Line with Buckley and Christopher Hitchens in the 80s, uh, his book very much argued that America had this non-ideological culture. Mm-hmm. That's how he describes it. Until uh, sort of this quote-unquote ideological politics from Europe was kind of imported. (laughs) Um, And then you had what he calls a bonfire of enthusiasms, by which he means things like civil rights, gay rights, uh, the women's movement, etc., Everyone knew their place. Right, but I mean, that that really is that really is it. And so that's a conservative version of it. Um, But there are obviously liberal uh, versions of it, too. There are even some sort of more leftyish inflected versions of it you know because there's a lot of romanticism for the the post-war settlement for the kinds of uh broadly keynesian uh broadly social democratic types of arrangements that existed a lot in a lot of european countries and i mean to a lesser extent in the united states but you know post the new deal 
I think people are are correct in their impulse, if you're coming from the left, to kind of prefer elements of that era to, you know, the politics we've had for the past few decades, which are much more anchored on the right. But I think people need to be very careful not to depoliticize kind of the, the post-war era and, and need to be careful to kind of understand why, insofar as things were better for some working people, that was the case. Um, it wasn't that people were just more polite or that there was some faction of more decent conservatives who just accepted the New Deal or accepted social democracy. I mean, to some extent they did, but that wasn't, you know, Richard Nixon didn't sort of broadly accept elements of the New Deal because he was like a fan of the American working Mm -hmm. class. It's because under things like the New Deal or, you know, European social democracy, working class people to some extent um, and I'm speaking very generally here, obviously, and there are exceptions, you know, were empowered. They had, you know, they had trade unions. They had parties that uh, represented the, their interests more closely, not perfectly, of course, but more closely. The intellectual tradition of democratic socialism was much more vibrant, you know, in the 1960s or 70s than it was in the 90s or the early 2000s. There, there are actual reasons that are kind of political and cultural reasons why the past was qualitatively different in the ways we've talked about um, from kind of the you know 90s or the 2000s or, or in many ways the present. Um, and it's not that uh, people were just kind of nicer back then or there was some strain of conservatism that was friendlier. You know, I remember reading Paul Krugman's book, The Conscience of a Liberal, um, maybe seven or eight years ago. And that's very much his narrative as well. It was uh, the New Deal was moving along fine, and then this this new monster appeared called movement conservatism, mm-hmm. and it undid the New Deal. And I mean, that's, I suppose it's broadly true, but it's lacking in kind of the structural, political, and cultural reasons why this, why this shift occurred. So that's why I'm very skeptical of anything that makes the kinds of arguments this film is making, which I think ultimately trade in kind of arbitrary nostalgia, which is not helpful for understanding the current moment um, or understanding the past. As I see it, the only person engaging in arbitrary nostalgia here is you, sir. <laughs> you better be careful or I'll sock you in the goddamn face. Uh, to comment, to uh, comment on uh, Republican politics, I think that the people of California uh, have the right, when they speak overwhelmingly, to project somebody into national politics, even if he did commit the sin of having uh, acted in movies uh, that were not written by Mr. Vidal. How about Mr. Vidal's answer to that? Well, as usual, Mr. Buckley, uh, with his enormous and thrilling charm, uh, manages to get away from the issue toward the comedy. He's always to the right, I think, and almost always in the wrong. So one of the talking heads that appeared in the movie was, uh, was Richard Wall. And he seemed, he struck me as familiar, but I couldn't exactly remember why. Did he do something dumb on Twitter or have a bad take recently? There's so many things that appear in the mind's eye for those of us who are extremely online. It's hard to keep track of them all. Boy, Luke, I'm glad you asked because (laughs) I have a personal connection to Richard Wald. He was actually one of my teachers at the Columbia Journalism School. He was the former head of NBC News, and uh, the two classes I had with him were a a large class, I think it was journalism ethics, and then there was a a smaller class of about 15 or 20 people, national affairs reporting. You know, he was uh, an incredible speaker. Uh, He brought in some very A-list guests, too. You know, uh, I believe the disgraced Brian Williams came to our class. (laughs) 
he apparently used to bring your favorite Henry Kissinger to class, but Good God. Uh, somebody somebody threatened Henry Kissinger once, so uh, he stopped coming. Good for whoever that was. <laughs> I, I remember him saying to me once uh, about a story that I wrote, uh, you know, as a news story, it stinks, but as a Sloan story, it's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Which was very flattering. But I remember on the last class of national affairs reporting, uh, first of all, he's a rich guy, so he got everyone in the class a bottle of champagne. And, you know, we were all drinking wow. champagne. And I remember at one point he said something, um, is this enough for everyone? <laughs> and we were all like, oh, it's fine. <laughs> But I remember on the last class, he, he, did, he always ended classes with, like, a, a very powerful soliloquy. And uh, on, on the last one he said... If you are planning on going out and becoming just a journeyman reporter, don't contact me. Don't talk to me at the reunion. I don't want to know you. Make yourself exceptional. Uh, and I thought, and you know, when you're when you're that age, words like that sort of hit you like uh, a pile of bricks. And then I remember seeing him. You know, after uh, the graduation at the reception after, and he said, Sloan, uh, what, what's next for you? And I said, oh, you know, I'm doing this internship at NPR. Uh, and then uh, after and that... they turned his back on you. <laughs> and, then, and then after that, I said, and then after that, who knows, I guess I'll have to get a real job. <laughs> and then he had this look on his face where it was clear that I had become the journeyman reporter just in that moment. <laughs> Uh, and and he was he was clearly just about to brush me off. I said, "Oh, don't worry, I wouldn't do that." And then I went <laughs> off. Because, and I, I felt so like bad inside. It's like, oh shit! I said I did the thing to Richard Wald where I'm not exceptional. <laughs> and I have to say that even at this late date, that speech that he gave at the end of class, you know, make yourself mm-hmm. uh, exceptional, um, like haunts me a little bit because when somebody like him, the former head of NBC News says that mm-hmm. to, to his journalism class, you know, it, it freaks you out a little bit. And you think, geez, am I exceptional? I, I thought the story was going to end, you know, and then he said, you know, make yourself exceptional. And that's when I decided to start the Michael and Us podcast. <laughs> well, I guess I, I have to ask you, Luke, is this sufficiently exceptional? I told this story to my girlfriend maybe seven or eight months ago, and she said that's a terrible thing to tell to tell a class. Uh-huh. And I think, well, geez, maybe it is. I never thought of it that way. It reminds me a lot of this, uh, you know, back when I was 14, I read a lot of Charles Bukowski, as, yeah. as, as young men have been known to do. Mm-hmm. And you, you know how he has poems, but they're essentially just, they're just prose, basically. Right. Prose arranged in stanzas. Here's something that's called, I don't remember exactly what it's called, but it's like on being a writer. And then almost the entire piece is about, you know, don't be a writer. (laughs) And he's just shouting at you and hectoring at you. Like, if you're doing it for this reason, don't do it. If you're doing it for this reason, don't do it. Um, And I remember finding that pretty discouraging as a a 14-year-old who thought that I had some writing chops, which of course I didn't. But yeah. Would Richard Wald understand the Michael and Us podcast? Can I approach him at the reunion? <laughs> I don't know the answer to that, but I do know that uh, I do know that it would make a great bit if there was a for the podcast. If there if there was a moment for you to to find out, I'm sure the listeners would love to know the answer. Oh God! Well, uh, uh, to be continued, I guess. No, actually, not though. I'm not gonna <laughs> contact him. Well, then, until next time, watch this drive.
baby, here I am, I'm a girl on the scene. I can give you what you want, but you gotta come home with me. I've got some real good loving and I've got some in stock. When I get through throwing it on, you gotta come back for more. Girls and things will come by the dozen, that ain't nothing but looks so loving. Good looking thing, let me light your candle, cause baby, I'm sure how to handle it. Yes, I am. Speak loud with the words and I'm a girl with a great experience I know you had you another But I can love you better than any other Take my hand, come with me I want to prove every word I say I want to love you, baby I'm gonna have you every day Come back for more Girls and things come by the dozen That ain't nothing but folks so loving Good looking thing, let me light your candle Cause baby, I'm sure how to handle mm, Yes, I am Baby, I wanna have it, baby I gotta have it, baby Give it to me, baby 